So going back to Matthew chapter 8, we finished talking about the three disciples. We want to look at the next area of Matthew chapter 8 where you have kind of a testing of the disciples. Kind of the first test that they go through where the disciples, after Jesus had told them the costs of discipleship, then it's kind of like what we see in our lives. Sometimes we get into following Jesus Christ. We are willing to make the commitment. We're willing to sacrifice it all, lay it all on the altar and and to follow Jesus. And then the very next day, a storm arises. Something happens in life that starts to test our commitment and our faithfulness. There's probably nothing more testing, trying to our faith than natural things that happen to us in our lives. As we look at this, this can come in many forms, okay? Um, It can come in the form of uh, personal family issues. It can come in the form of problems with cancers and illnesses and death and loss, all sorts of things that happen that leave us asking the question, why God and why me and what for and what's the reason behind it? But what you find is that when you look at the scriptures, that there's so many occurrences of problems in people's lives, okay? And what's funny to me is is that for some reason we've adopted the idea that, you know, if we follow Jesus, everything's good and great and wonderful and you have no problems. And again, it's kind of the have it my way mentality that following Jesus is right. And if I do right, then I'm going to get right things done to me. This is a very old theological principle and it actually goes all the way back to cases like the book of Job. And in the book of Job, you have a idea about evil and problems in the world. And the, the, the solution that they came up with was is that if you are suffering from something, whatever it is, cancer, illness, loss, that it is a direct correlation to a sin in your life. Okay? This was kind of the tit-for-tat mentality or um, getting what you deserved. Okay, so that's why the three counselors who counseled Job counseled him with that mentality. Job, you're professing that you're more righteous than you really are. Obviously, have you ever seen a righteous man suffer? No. So therefore, if you're suffering, you must not be righteous. There must be something wrong. You have unconfessed sin. You've done something you're not telling God about. And you need to confess now and repent, and then all of these troubles will go away. And of course, Job would continue to come back to him and be like, Look, guys, I don't know what you're talking about. I have not done anything wrong. I have not done anything to deserve this. And that was actually the argument by the end that he takes to God. God, you are unjust. You are persecuting me, and I've done nothing wrong. And that's when God would answer him back and say, Job, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I did all these things? Where were you? And would you, who are from unclean lips, basically accuse me of being unjust? Are you my judge? So there's an idea that if you do right, you're supposed to get right things to you. 
Okay. Now, obviously, we understand that there are times and there's occasions and places where God allows evil to happen in good people's lives for very specific purposes and for his own design and for whatever his reasons are. But bad things happen to good people, and that's just a reality. And nowhere in the scripture does it say those things will quit happening when you believe in Jesus. So here these people have believed in Jesus. They're following Jesus. They profess to be his disciples. He puts them in a ship and sends them to the other side. And it says, and when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him and he beheld or and behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea insomuch that the ship was covered with waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he said unto them, why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the seas, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, this highlights kind of three different areas. And again, we did discuss this briefly at the nursing home, I think, last week or the weekend before. That you had in the evidence of the disciples here three characteristics. Lack of faith in the disciples, Christ's power over the natural world, and the marveling of the disciples. When we look at the lack of faith, you see him ask them, Why are ye so fearful, O ye of little faith? Now, what's interesting about that is, number one, you get, and it's probably a tie-in that's not direct, or I guess you could make that assumption, but there's no direct tie-in from the Scriptures. A lot of times, when things are proven out by Jesus, you see him tie them back to other Scriptures. This one's not necessarily that case, but you do get the idea of why was Jesus sleeping and everybody else was, so, was going nuts, okay? Why was Jesus sleeping in this storm, but everybody else was going nuts? Okay. Jesus is sleeping here. If you went over to uh, Psalm verse 3, you see the psalmist there give this account. Okay. And there is a tie-in. Jesus and David, they're very close. Okay. There's a lot of prophecies in Psalms written by David that were speaking of Jesus. In, G, in Psalm chapter 3, he says this, Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. So the verse of Scripture there in verse 5, that I lay my head down to sleep because the Lord is my sustainer. That's a very important verse of scripture to hold on to it has incalculable weight in that verse of scripture basically what the psalmist was saying was this i can sleep well at night because i know my lord is my sustainer and protector so i don't worry i don't stay up all night worrying i think all of us have either known that or experienced that or know people who have and I always like to say, what good did it do? <laughs> How did it help? Did we make anything? That's why Paul will tell you, worry about nothing but, be, but everything through prayer and supplication. The reason being, because it doesn't do anything 
for you. So instead of worrying about it, you take it to the Lord in prayer, and then you lay your head down and you go to sleep. Now, that's something that's very easy for me to do. Uh, My wife, not so much. She's had a rough day at work or thinking about things. She just dwells on them and repeats them over and over again in her head. Stays up all night. Me, I'm like, that's in the past. I'm done. Lay my head down. I'm gone. Uh, There's not a whole lot that keeps me up. Not even my three-year-old, four-year-old son in the bed with me kicking and flailing about. I'm out and gone. Emily will be up every hour. Um, It's probably why the monitors for the babies are on her side as well. Uh, Because when I go to sleep, I go to sleep. Okay? But here you have the psalmist saying, I lay my head down and I sleep well. Why? Because the Lord is my sustainer. I have confidence in his, about, in his power and ability to keep me through the night and to handle any problems that arise. I heard a preacher a couple of weekends ago that was talking about uh, apparently there's these companies or whatever, these personal assistants that you can hire, virtual per- personal assistants that you can hire from other countries to basically be your personal assistant for you, okay? Virtually through the computer and all that stuff because obviously they're not there physically. Um, so he said this guy was so worried about his business. He stayed up all night worrying about his business and all this. And so he hired one of these personal assistants who obviously they're on the other side of the world. And so their day when we're night and we're night when they're day, that kind of a deal. And so before he would go to bed, he would send her an email and be like, okay, these are all the things I was going to worry about tonight. Will you please worry about them all next day? So he'd go to sleep, and she'd worry about it all day. And then he'd send an email, she'd send an email back when he woke up and say, okay, these are the things I worried about last night. So now I'll give them back to you. People have a bad habit of just worrying about issues. Here... Jesus and the disciples give two different classifications of people. You have people who are very worried and a person who is very much not. One of them trusted and knew, and you say, oh, that's cheating because Jesus is God and he knew what was going to happen. He knew he was going to rebuke the waves in the sea, and therefore he's kind of cheating because here he is sleeping. No, there was a point why it was written that he was sleeping, and there's another point why he was actually sleeping. He knew and trusted in the God that was his sustainer. So, when the disciples are afraid, you do get this picture. Number one, the disciples have all good reason to be afraid, okay? You don't really want to throw off on them too much. I jokingly said, any kind of situation where I am in a boat and there is a storm, you're going to see a brother that's lacking some faith as well, okay? Um, That's just me, all right? It would almost be like if you saw me on a boat in a storm full of spiders, I might lose my faith, okay? I might lose it altogether. But here you see them. They're in the middle of the storm. The storm is tossing about. The waves are capsizing the boat almost. Brothers got reason to be afraid, okay? But what Jesus says to them, again, almost like what he did to the man who had lost his father. Oh, ye of little faith. You got to be like, come on, Jesus. What, What is this little faith? I'm on a boat. We're in the middle of the ocean. There's a sea raging around us. And you're going to lecture me about faith. We're going to die. Jesus telling them, talking to them, explaining to them in that one phrase, Oh, why are you afraid ye of little faith? What this epitomizes for us is this. And it's, you know, you always want to be careful about not drawing too many allegories out of different things. And, you know, people want to talk about David and Goliath and then equate that to every life, spiritual battle, blah, 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 all that good stuff. 
Here, we got to be careful about not going, yes, in every storm of life that you face and all this, okay? But here's the deal. They were in a real storm. They were really fearing for their lives. And what Jesus was trying to convey to them was that you have to trust me in everything. There is no aspect of your life, no situation you are going into that I am not with you. But beyond that, you have to trust me in all of those situations. He wasn't lecturing them about how to get more faith or use more faith. He was lecturing them on trusting in him. Am I the Savior? Am I the Messiah? Am I God and King? If so, then trust in me. Even when everything around you looks like it is going to pot, okay? Even when the storm is blowing over the deck and the ship looks like it is not going to survive, your life looks like it's not going to survive, your situation looks like you're not going to survive it, do we still cling to Jesus and say, hey, I know whatever happens, we're gonna, it's going to be okay. We're going to make it through this. I often will use for an example of this, if you think about Paul, and as we went through the book of Acts, you know, we talked about Paul. And as Paul is going to Rome, you know, God had told Paul, you're going to Rome. You're going to preach to the people in Rome. And Paul, you have to at least imagine like all of us had thoughts about how he would get there. Especially in those days, you're going to start laying out a trip guide, a plan. Okay, I'll get in this boat and we'll go over to Cyprus and then we'll swing around the horn of, you know, we're going to get there. Okay. I don't think Paul had in mind, I'm going to get arrested, I'm going to travel as a prisoner, I'm going to get shipwrecked, I'm going to stay in the sea four days, I'm going to get on a deserted island with aboriginals, I'm going to get bitten by a snake, I'm going to be on house arrest for four... I mean, I don't think that's how Paul really imagined it going, do you? I don't think that's what Paul had... I I would fire that travel agent if that was the one... You know, the one who ever booked Paul's trip, you know, whatever, Macedonian travel, whatever it was, I would fire them outright, okay? You, you are fired, okay? I expected a nice cruise, all-inclusive, my meals paid for, and I was going to get to Rome and preach, all right? Not the case for Paul. God said, I'm going to deliver you to Rome. Now watch how I do it, Okay? That's really, really, really important for us to grab hold of. God says he will never leave us nor forsake us. God says, I'm with you wherever you go. I am, you are in my Father's hand. No man can pluck you out. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. No swords, no perils, no problems, no issues. Nothing can do that. You are my sheep. I will forsake the 90 and 9 and go get the one that's off in the briars, and I will bring them back to the fold. We have beautiful imagery of Christ as our sustaining, protecting provider throughout our entire existence. But he doesn't say, I will never, ever let you go through a rough spot. He never says, I'm going to make sure your life is dandelions and roses. You never have to worry your sweet little head about anything. He says, I'm with you. Wherever you go, I'm with you. Now, the reason that I wanted to touch back on this is because go back now to what we just talked about this morning about Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. 
Jesus says, where I'm going, I don't have a place to lay my head. Are you willing to go there? Well, for every one of us, it's going to be different. But there's going to be plenty of times where God says, you've got to go here. You say, oh, okay, well, maybe I can come to grips with that. And it's like, what you don't know is you're going to go there, but you're going to go there as a prisoner. You're going to go there through trials. You're going to go through tribulations. You're going to go there through heartaches. You're going to go through heartbreaks. You're going to go through all sorts of different mini caveats and issues and problems. And are we going to hold on to Jesus the whole way? Are we going to continue to follow him, continue to be his disciple, continue to enjoy, as Paul would say, that I rejoice in my tribulations? Knowing that tribulations worketh patience, and patience works hope. And hope is something that we should not be ashamed of. The thing that's sad about this is that what we talked about before, I love the Roman centurion. Okay? Because of all the people that you would expect not to be a devout, faithful person at this point in time, the Roman centurion was. In fact, the greatest example of faith that we have. Here, he's looking at these Jews going, guys, I mean, why don't you trust me? Why don't you trust me that I can handle this situation? When you look back into the Psalms again, I mean, there, there were Psalms, I think it was Psalm 89 and Psalm uh, 93, yeah, 89 and 93 both. Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. In Psalm 93, the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. The Jews grew up with things like that. Why couldn't Jesus? Do you believe I'm the Messiah? Do you believe I'm God? Then why wouldn't you believe that I can still the sea? Why wouldn't you believe that I have the power to keep us through a storm? And I think that's probably the biggest thing that we wrestle with and that makes us shaky in our faith is when problems arise or when situations arise that we don't understand, we can't see around the corner, we can't grab what God is doing in this situation, we fail to trust that He is still with us. He's still, he's, he wasn't freaking out. He was asleep in the bottom of the ship. He was not worried about the situation one bit. He had it under control. So who are we lining up as our role models in this picture? Who is the one we're going to look to? The one who is losing his mind on the deck because he doesn't see how God can ever possibly calm this storm? Or the one that's asleep in the bottom going, I know the Lord's got it all under control. It's something that we really should reflect on. What we should compare this to is that when you look at the end of Matthew chapter 7, we talked about the example that is given there of those who are built on the rock or built on the sand. And I know you've heard this over multiple times and everything. And all too often, as I talked about when we went through it, we look at that as a prescriptive thing. Okay, In the sense that we say, well, what are you built on? Are you built on the rock or the sand? Make sure you're building yourself on the rock. And that way, you know, you're going to stand in the time of adversity but the phraseology and where this is placed in the discussion is not telling, kind of like with the Beatitudes, it's not telling you things you need to adopt, but rather describing who you really are, okay? So the Beatitudes we talked about were not attitudes as like, hey, you need to get some meekness. It's that the born-again child of God has meekness, and this is how they, it plays out, okay? 
So here with this same thing, you have the people who are built on the rock. Those are the ones who are established that Jesus Christ has established, okay? And he's telling them, this is the person built on a rock, not the false prophet we just talked about. They're built on a sand. They don't have a good foundation. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are built on a rock. You're built on Jesus Christ. So you don't worry when the storm comes because you know you're on a solid foundation. Okay, So it's a description of hope and sustainability, I guess would be the word. It's a description of a sureness, a hope, a protection, a grounding that you have. So that when the storms come, it's not have I built myself enough and am am I going to survive? It's you are already built, now stand tall, okay? You're already built on the rock. Jesus has already done the work for you. He's already placed you on that sure foundation. Stand up in the storm and realize I'm built on a rock. I can't be shaken. We live too often like we're built on sand. If you're a believer, you're not. You're built on Jesus Christ. He is your foundation. So rest on him. Can't tell you how you're going to get out of it. Can't tell you how he's going to get you out of that storm. Here he went out and he just rebuked it and said, hey, adios. See you later, wind seas, you're done, okay? With Paul, he didn't do that. He said, Paul, hang on, brother. It's going to be a wild ride. We're going to go a lot of places. A lot of people you're going to bump into. A lot of people that are going to see my glory and my power. I always marvel at the people that he runs into on the island, okay? Now look, isn't that interesting? He wasn't planning to go there. He didn't say, hey, on our way, let's stop by island number XYZ. I'm going to preach the gospel to them. No, he got there because he got shipwrecked. A storm arose. I'm sure just by chance and randomness. But a storm arose. Broke up the ship. He stays in the water for two days. He lands on this beach. He meets these people who are hospitable to them. A snake jumps out of the fire and bites him and God doesn't let it kill him. And boom, the gospel is preached in that way to the people there on that island. We never know how these things are going to work out. You never know how God is going to allow us to go through problems that when we are looking to him and standing on his foundation and going through them with the faith that Christ had in this storm, that we have the opportunities to be able to influence other people around us. You know, we talked this morning about that we are here as light and salt in the world to preach the gospel, to tell people of the gospel, to see people delivered out of the bondage that they are in through the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ and all these things. We talk about all that and then we're like, oh yeah, well, what are we, you know, you hope that the next sentence is, oh yeah, yeah, I'm so excited about that. What are we going to do? How are we going to do that? Maybe we all need to book a flight to Africa or maybe we need to go to China or maybe we're going to hand out Bibles in North Korea or something like that. Well, that's not what Paul was doing in those situations. Now, there's people who are called to that, and there's situations that God calls people to to do that. But a lot of times it's things like this, going through a tough spot. Keep your eyes on Jesus and then pray and watch for examples of how you can be bumped into people that you had no anticipation of bumping into. And when they see you standing on the rock after you've just gotten through the shipwreck, how you can go, this is my Jesus. Not only did he save me from my sins, not only did he save me from my addictions, whatever it may be, he saved me the other day when he pulled me out of the ocean after my ship sank, okay? Again, we talk about if anything can inspire faith, all right, 
If you want to see me super faithful or inspiration of faith, you let me somehow get through a shipwreck and come out without losing my mind, that would be a mark of extreme God's intervention, okay? But this is where you see applying what, and again, it's not even, you know, I want us to kind of grab hold of this. This is an example of Christ trying to get them back on the foundation, trying to show them, guys, you're above this. You trust in me. You know me. I'm telling you that I've got this under control. I think that's the biggest issue we have as believers is we can't let go of the control. We want to be in control. We want to have control of the situation. We want to have it planned out. I am a huge let's plan it out kind of a thing. Okay, God, let me plan out the next 30-year trajectory. That way I'll feel more comfortable about it. And I'll know where we can tick off these marks and I will feel like at the end of my life I have run my race and we are a success. Okay? But what God tries to explain and teach and show us all through the scriptures is, is that you are so very much not in control. None of us are. None of us have, have our hands on the reins. That's why over and over again, Christ tells you, just submit, lay down, quit trying, give it up. Because I am in control. I am sovereign. If you go back to the story of Job, you sit there and look at Job. And Job, man, he was trying to gain control from this. God, if I could just meet you face to face, I know that I could lay out my case well. And then you would respond and we would get all this cleared up. Job was like the first lawyer mentioned in the Bible and the worst one in the Bible that I can find. Okay? Let me just argue my case before you, God. I promise I can convince you. Okay? And he failed miserably. Okay? Uh, so not a testimony to his profession. But what you see, though, in that is you see him trying to regain control of the situation. If I can just get God to see what's wrong with this situation, I know he'll understand and he'll fix it. And God just kind of sat back and looked at him and said, Job, you're not in control, buddy. You weren't with me when I made the world. You weren't with me when I did this. You weren't with me when I, you know, slayed the behemoth and put the reins on. I mean, you weren't there. That's me. That's all me. You weren't with me when I laid the stars out. You weren't with me when I had the currents flowing around the world. You are not in control of anything. You don't even have control of your life. Look at your life right now. You know, I mean, he can sit back and look at Job and go, look at your life. Look what's happening to you. How much control do you think you have over this? And that's terrifying for us because we sit there and go, oh, well, I mean, if I just, if I eat right and I exercise right and I do all this, then nothing's going to happen. I'm, I'm, I've got it under control. I've got my paleo diet. I've got my uh, P90X going on. And I've got, you know, I'm no cows, no, uh, you know, no cholesterol, no carbs, never smoke or drink or do anything bad. I don't go out without SPF 100. I have all organic whatever materials in my life. And I mean, I've just got it all. I have eliminated all possible offenses in my life. And guess what? You still die. And sometimes even in those situations, you get cancer out of nowhere. And sometimes in those situations, you have things develop that you had no foreseeable control over. And so when that happens, and that's, you know, we talk about things with that, that can be any life situations 
my kids, uh, one of my kids died. My kids don't talk to me anymore. My kids ran off with somebody else and I don't ever see them anymore. Um, everything. My job didn't work out like I wanted it to. I wanted this job. Now I've got the. I lost my job. I had the best job. I was ranking in that job, and then the market fell out, and all of a sudden, now my job's gone. Car wrecks. Life. Life happened. And now I'm not where I thought I would be. So instead, what... He is trying to encourage us in this is don't be afraid and trust in me. Trust in my power. Trust in my ability. Trust in my sovereignty. That's what's so amazing about that doctrinal principle is when we talk about sovereignty, people want to, you know, there's all these, everybody wants to argue about it. Well, they're either sovereign or you're not, and it's free will and blah, 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 and all that stuff. No, stop, pause, go back and understand that Job clearly teaches God is sovereign, okay? Now go forward from that and understand that it's not an arguing point against someone who believes in free will. It is a resting point in the fact that God's sovereignty lets me realize my hands aren't on the wheel. Well, God's are. And I don't have to worry about it. No matter what happens. If he wants to let me go on a shipwreck cruise up to, to Rome. Or if he wants to bless me in my life. That I never have any problems. Either way. Whatever happens. God is in control. I'm not. And I trust him. Because you know what? He's a pretty smart guy. He's got this whole omnipotence thing going on. He's got this whole omniscient thing going on. He's got this whole omnipresent thing going on. I mean he's everywhere. knows everything. All powerful. I mean, I can't think of a better person to have at the hand of the real right. You know, can't think of anybody else I would rather have there. And in fact, if I think of it that way, I go, I am so glad that I'm not at the wheel. Okay. I'm so glad that I can step back and go, you know what? No, it's, it's God. And I'm glad that he's driving this ship because if I was doing it, I can already look back in my life and see how much of a mess I truly can make of things. But the thing that we should never do, we should never marvel in the way that these disciples marveled at Jesus' ability. You say, well, why don't you marvel at what Jesus does? Well, you marvel in a good way. And what I mean by that is, is that you are marveling in the grandeur and power and gloriousness of God and His ability to work out situations in a way that you never anticipated. The problem with the disciples here is that they marveled at Jesus' ability as if, oh, I didn't know you could do that. How can you do that? What manner of man is this? Well, there's your problem right there. He's not. He's not a manner of a man. He's God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is the argument that the centurion soldier used when he was talking about Christ healing his servant. He said, I know you're able to speak, as it says, to command and it will Stand fast. I know that, that Jesus, if you just speak, my disciple will be healed. Because I recognize in you the authority and the power to do that. Which is basically him saying, I recognize you are God Almighty, creator of everything and everyone. So, by that same token, are we marveling? When we see God work things out in our lives, do we marvel in the sense of like, Oh, Jesus, I didn't, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you had that power. Well, well, look at that. Look at there, Jesus. You came in for me. 
do we have that kind of doubt in our minds that we really don't believe Jesus when he says, I am here with you? Or do we trust in him by faith? And you can still marvel, but you're marveling in a good way. Marveling at how gracious he is to us. Marveling that he would care to come down and deliver me yet again from another issue that I've probably gotten myself into. Marveling at the fact that God is still so long-suffering with me no matter how stupid and dumb and whatever else I do. So hopefully what we learn from this is Jesus encouraging in a very in a very kind of nice way encouraging us to trust in him. There are going to be problems. You probably already had them, you're probably still in them or there's some around the corner. We can't see them, but do we trust that Jesus is with us? Do we believe his word? You know, we talked about this with living out the principles of what Christ taught. Well, these are the principles. Living through the problems but still trusting in Jesus. That's part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. That's embodying that teaching. So hopefully Lord, the Lord will bless us to do that. I want to read one prayer um, that was from a book that we talked about when we were uh, going through Lent. Remember at the beginning of the Lent God stuff, it had a prayer thing from a book called The Valley of Visions, which were a collection of Puritan uh, prayers. And they just, I mean, they just nail it on the head every time. So this is one that I wanted us to go out thinking on as we close. Creator and Redeemer God, author of all existence, source of all blessedness, I adore thee for making me capable of knowing thee, for giving me reason and conscience, for leading me to desire thee. I praise thee for the revelation of thyself in the gospel, for thy heart as a dwelling place of pity, for thy thoughts of peace towards me, for thy patience and thy graciousness, for the vastness of thy mercy. Thou hast moved my conscience to know how the guilty can be pardoned, the unholy sanctified, and the poor enriched. May I, always, may I be always amongst those who not only hear but know thee, who walk with and rejoice in thee, who take thee at thy word and find life there. Keep me always longing for a present salvation in Holy Spirit comforts and rejoicings, for spiritual graces and blessings, for help to value my duties as well as my privileges. May I cherish simplicity and godly sincerity of character. Help me to be in reality before thee as in appearance I am before men, to be religious before I profess religion, to leave the world before I enter the church, to set my affections on things above, to shun forbidden follies and vanities, to be a dispenser as well as a partaker of grace, to be prepared to bear evil as well as to do good. O oh God, make me worthy of this calling, that the name of Jesus may be glorified in me and I in him. Amen.